Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram speaking and joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Not much. I'm just hanging out in Toronto. Nice. So there was an interesting article recently published by Martin Fowler. And I guess Martin Fowler, he's a little more than just like an engineer. Like what how would you describe this guy? Yeah. So he's been writing a lot of great articles on software development for as long as I've I've been a programmer. The chief scientist at uh, ThoughtWorks. And from what I can tell, he basically writes a lot on uh, architecture, like just software development methodologies and design patterns and things like that. And his articles are usually like very high quality and, and dense with like useful information. Yeah, uh, his website's just martinfowler.com. There's a treasure trove of, of like software design, architectural stuff on his site. So he wrote a article titled is high quality software worth the cost? Question mark. It's a question. And it was a really interesting article. I thought it would be worth just talking through uh, with respect to feature development, technical debt, what's important, what are the gives and takes and that sort of thing. And he actually, at the beginning of the article, I like art when articles do this in, in general, where they kind of point to like some kind of historical axiom of some kind, but he, he points to this law. It's not really like a physical law. It's just a uh, I think this is kind of tongue-in-cheek. There's something called Betteridge's Law of Headlines. And the law is that any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. <laughs> and Martin Fowler kind of like thinks of himself as this maverick, you know, and he's, he wants the answer to this question to be yes instead of no. So we'll walk through this article now. So he breaks up the article in a few different sections. We'll go into each one. Here's kind of who he's aiming towards in terms of who would find value out of this. Though I think I think a lot of people would find value out of this in kind of understanding how projects are run and you know how stakeholders think about different things with respect to how their projects are run. Although most of my writing is aimed at software professional software developers, for this article, I'm not going to assume any knowledge of the mechanics of software development. My hope is this is an article to be, can be valuable to anyone involved in thinking about software efforts, particularly those such as business leaders that act as customers of the software development teams. So this first section is, are we used to the trade-off between quality and cost? And this is just a short paragraph where he basically is saying that the basic assumptions in building software is that higher quality usually costs more. And then he has another section, software quality means many things. And he says, if I'm going to talk about quality for software, I need to explain what that is. So Faison, this is kind of an interesting question. We'll talk to, we'll, again, we'll talk about what he means by quality, but I guess, how do we think about quality? I think it's very uh, domain dependent, right? Like if, if we're looking at building something for a startup, then 
an important part of your quality is actually going to be your most likely your ability to iterate and make changes quickly and have, you know, also like performance matters. If you're building something for like the back office, it's, you know, it maybe doesn't need as much performance or it it might not change as much, but it needs to be like UX might matter a lot and or it just having a really useful interface. So I think it's really like problem dependent. Yep. I think equality is this like overarching term that covers like quality of code, architecture, the actual like design and UX and like ability to be performant, but also to iterate quickly. And, and it, quality is just a set of different trade-offs of those things, depending on what your actual domain is. And of course, single quotes versus double quotes, right? Um, that's, that's always an important part of quality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously if you are using tabs instead of spaces, right. then you, it's, your software is clearly garbage. Right. <laughs> so here are the things that he kind of lays out as quality. I can consider the user interface. Does it easily lead me through the tasks I need to do, making me more efficient and removing frustrations? I think he's talking from like a customer standpoint here. I can consider its reliability. Does it contain defects that cause errors and frustration? Another aspect is its architecture. Is the source code divided into clear modules so that programmers can find and can easily find and understand which bit of code they need to work on this week? So he, you know, he says this is an example of quality. It's not an exhaustive list. And I think to your point earlier, you know, that list is very dependent on kind of the, what the software is being built for. Although I I would say like as a user, you know, you don't, you want, is it helping me be more efficient and remove frustrations? This is a pretty important part of quality software, I think. And user interface, does it easily lead me through the tasks I need to do? I think, I think that as well. What are your thoughts on those three? Yeah, I like that because, you know, there's some software that you just write it once, it solves the problem and it sits there for many, many years. But more often, especially if we're looking at, you know, modern SaaS companies or software projects, it's not like a product, it's actually a process. And so I like that his three points take into account both sets of customers. One is the end users of the software, but because it's something that's constantly under development, how it interacts with the actual programmers is also important. Yep. And so I like that he covers both sides of that. And I think you had once said on a prior podcast that you should actually never build your, I think the point you were making was kind of like, or do I really need this? And I think the point that you made was that you shouldn't build software unless you really need it. And I think that when I read this, I kind of thought about Excel and how Excel is just kind of a really nice piece of software for financial professionals because it handles so many different kind of things. You know, does it easily lead me through the tasks I need to do so and so? Is it reliable? Yes. Bugs in Excel? I don't actually really remember hitting any bugs ever in Excel. I can't really speak to its architecture. Uh, is the source code divided to clear modules? But I will say that every time there a lot of the products Microsoft puts out, I will say that Excel, every time there's a new version, it has some really nice new features. Like I think one of the latest versions, you can actually do API calls from Excel directly. Okay. Yeah. And so it's funny because you always hear about like these startups that are trying to like disrupt Excel. And I think it's often from people who haven't really like used it on a regular basis. Yeah. And to be fair, a lot of the conversations about software quality happen in environments where resources are somewhat constrained. Yep. And I would imagine that Excel has more resources behind it than 
most software projects on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they maybe you're not operating under the same limitations as your average startup. Right. And not even financial resources, but also like yeah. customer feedback. I mean, so many yeah. you can, you can, uh, I just, yeah. but I'm just incredibly impressed by what Excel is capable of doing. You can do a lot in it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we've joked internally, like, do you really need SAS apps? Can't you just do this in, in like a distributed Excel if you really needed to? Okay. So then he divides software quality attributes into external, like UI and defects, those first two points into internal. I would add to that performance. As part of external? Yeah. Okay. What do you mean? Like something being able to work quickly is an important part of the external quality. Yep. Oh, performance meaning that it... Uh, speed, yeah. Speed, okay, okay, got it. Okay, next section. At first glance, internal quality does not matter to customers. Okay. <laughs> Since internal quality isn't some, I can just hear like developers grinding their teeth at this. Since internal quality isn't something that customers or users can see, does it matter? Let's imagine Rebecca and I write an application to track and predict flight delays. Both our applications do the same thing. The only difference is that her internal source code is neatly organized while mine is a tangled mess. There's only one other difference. I sell mine for $6. She sells her for $12. Um, this is a very idealized example, but let's run with it. Right. <laughs> I, I would just say that because, yeah, in a perfect world, like there's a, like the whole assumption is that there's a linear relationship between cost and quality. And the reality is far from that, and it's so much more dependent on developer quality. But let's let's move on. We can come back. So to he that. so he says like basically a user can judge whether they want to pay more to get a better user interface, since they can assess whether the user interface is sufficiently nicer to be worth the extra money. But they can't do that with the internals of the software. And I, I probably agree with that. I think one danger. I don't know if danger is a little too strong of a word, but one issue with kind of how often you see software projects run is that you'll see resource, you know, you'll see like decision makers manage resources in a particular way where they don't really understand what internal quality means and they are only paying to attention to kind of the external quality. And I don't know what the fix is there. You know, we've talked about this a lot just internally. I don't think we've podcasted about it or anything, but... We have all the answers. We're just sharing them a little bit right. at a time. Yeah, <laughs> so you keep listening. <laughs> uh, the next session, internal quality makes it easier to enhance software. So why is it that developers make an issue out of internal quality? Programmers spend most of their time modifying code. Even in a new system, almost all programming is done in the context of an existing code base. When I want to add a new feature to the software, my first task is to figure out how this feature fits into the flow of the existing application. We know that all too well. I then need to change that flow to let my feature fit in. I often need to use data that's already in the application, so I need to understand what the data represents, how it relates to the data around it, and what data I might need to add for my new feature. So I think the point he's making here is that, you know, Regardless of what the architecture, the uh, software architecture of the system is, say I get a request for a new feature I need to put in, I have to figure out how that feature fits into the current application. Is it just like, you know, a small tweak to a feature that already exists? Is it an entirely new feature that's going to require like massive database changes and things like that? So I thought this was an interesting point that he yeah. was making. And I, I think... Uh... Where sometimes the 
quality gets lost or you have a, a bit of friction between maybe the engineering team and the product or sales teams is that uh, it does take time generally to like have higher quality software that's easier to change and keep structured correctly. But oftentimes from a product perspective, things are not thought of on a like on a moving timeline, but rather we need to have this feature out by this date. Yep. And we need to have this feature out by this date. And so if you're targeting a specific point in time, the quality for the next feature that is not yet planned, like doesn't actually get accounted for. But over the course of like two years, three years, four years, it starts making a huge difference on your on your product planning. Yeah. So I think it's about like thinking to a deadline versus thinking to a uh, like a period of time right. in terms of what your product's going to be able to do. Yep. So he he does say this. So all of this is about me understanding the existing code, but it's very easy for software to be hard to understand. Logic can get tangled. The data can be hard to follow. The names used to refer to things may have made sense to Tony six months ago, but are as mysterious to me as his reasons for leaving the company. It's a nice little jab at Tony, I guess. All of these are forms of what developers refer to as cruft, which is the difference between the current code and how it would ideally be. I've heard a lot of words, but not cruft. (laughs) I've heard it called a lot of different things, some of which we won't repeat. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we have the explicit tag on, on this one. One of the primary features of internal quality is making it easier for me to figure out how the application works so I can see how to add things. If the software is nicely divided into separate modules, I don't have to read all 500,000 lines of code. I can quickly find a few hundred lines in a couple of modules. So like I I think you the point you were making earlier, yeah, that's this is all true in like an ideal world. I don't necessarily know if it's like that black or white though. Like we've dealt with all kinds of code bases. I don't have never dealt with one that's just literally one of file of like 500,000 lines of code. I think we're lucky because we've I've talked to a few people where that or maybe not 500,000 but the entire program was inside of like one function and stuff like that. <laughs> so I've heard the horror stories. I think we've just been fortunate to not have to run into anything that wild. I guess you could stick all your React app into just your app.js file. But yeah, it's not something that we typically see, but he goes on to say, Cruft adds to the time it takes for me to understand how to make a change and also increases the chances that I'll make a mistake. If I spot my mistakes, then there's more time lost as I have to understand what the fault is and how to fix it and so on. If I don't spot them, we'll get production defects and more time spending fixing things later, which of course will be more expensive. So, you know, this seems like a really important point to make to say non-technical folks and kind of uh, stakeholders. What's a, like, what do you think would be a nice way to summarize this to, to them? Yeah. So part of the problem stems from the fact that bugs are largely seen as mistakes the developers made, where you have, like, I would almost make, there's three classes of bugs. There's a, like, developer unforced errors, like, that's just, like, something stupid that I did that I, like, just shouldn't have done. I was being careless in my process or just a little bit of human error or what have you. Yep. Then there's errors that I made that were potentially unavoidable, um, something that didn't show up in staging or development, but was a production issue that I couldn't have predicted, but then I caught and fixed that sort of thing. Like we'll call those unforced errors. And then the third is like this systemic issue. 
So, and this is much harder to measure because, you know, people add bug trackers and they try to see how much time was spent fixing bugs versus working on features and this, that. But it's really hard to separate the developer errors from the fact that if you have a well-architected piece of software, your team is maybe putting out, uh, you know, spending 10% of their time bug fixing versus if you've rushed everything out and piled the crap on top of, or cruft on top of cruft, <laughs> um, you're, you're spending 30% of your time fixing bugs. And so that 20% delta is really systemic to your process yep. and how much time people are allotted to either do things correctly or implementing a good software development process. And the problem is that bugs fundamentally, it's, it's really hard to measure in any way whatsoever. And so because it's hard to measure, it's really hard to classify and then measure and differentiate. And so you, I think most places are not, unable to do a good job of understanding how much time is lost to like structural shortcuts in their process, yep. especially when you have things like deadlines added to the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a nice little like infographic. A common metaphor for cruft is technical debt. The extra cost on adding features is like paying interest. Cleaning up the cruft is like paying down the principal. I mean, I get that theoretically. Um, okay, while it's helpful, while it's a helpful metaphor, it does encourage many to believe cruft is much easier to measure and control than in practice. Because I guess in finance, you can kind of you just need to get the money and you can you can deal with the issue. This yeah. is a little very different than that. And the other difference is that with real debt, there's still a fundamental limitation to how much people will lend you. Whereas with technical debt, you can essentially take out, you can pyramid your debt as much as you want. Right. And so the compounding is much more extreme than what might happen in real life. Yeah. You got a tranche of technical debt in this module, another tranche and another one. Yeah. Customer, this is another section of his, customers do care that new features come quickly. Here we see a clue of why internal quality does matter to users and customers. So he's making like more of a business case here on why teams should care about about these issues. Better internal quality makes adding new features easier, therefore quicker and cheaper. Rebecca and I might have the same application now, but in the next few months, Rebecca's high internal quality allows her to add new features every week while I'm stuck trying to chop through the cruft to just get a new feature out. I can't compete with their speed and soon her software is far more featureful than mine. This is really interesting because, like, this is kind of a, I mean, this has significant effects on how well a team can do, especially early on, if they're competing with, like, people who are trying to do something similar with, you know, different code bases. And we've talked about, uh, you know, leverage being a competitive advantage in terms of, like, Elixir Mm -hmm. as a a selection in terms of our tech stack and being able to both prototype and scale quickly. And... Architecture is just another piece of that. You know, good architecture gives you more leverage and thus is a technical competitive advantage. Yep. And I think he's making that that point. I wonder if how you would be able to like quantify this for teams. I'm not sure. I'm just talking I'm just thinking out loud right now. Yeah, yeah. That's a tough one. The next section, visualizing the impact of internal quality. The fundamental role of internal quality is that it lowers the cost of future change. But there is some extra effort required to write good software, which does impose some cost in the short term. A way of visualizing this is with the following pseudograph, where I plot the cumulative functionality of software versus time, this cost to produce it. For most software efforts, the curve looks like this. And it kind of it basically, I mean, we'll link to the article. You can take it, you look at it. It looks like a parabola that's pretty closer to the x-axis with kind of a a narrow neck. 
But what he's saying is with most software systems, it becomes harder to add new features over time. This means they take longer to appear at an increasing cost. So all the way at the right end, if you have low internal quality, the cumulative functionalities is more expensive. There's a, our good friend, uh, Heroic Eric has a line that he likes to use when discussing like software velocity. He's like, you shouldn't be aiming for a high velocity. You should be aiming for having the same velocity every week. Yep. And I think it highlight it explains the two curves because you can get a high velocity short term and then build in a lot of cruft. Yep. Okay. Now he says, this is what happens with internal, with what we just talked about is how poor internal quality looks. Progress is rapid initially, but as time goes on, it gets harder to add new features. Even small changes require programmers to understand large areas of code, code that's difficult to understand. When they make changes, unexpected breakages occur, and so on. Concentrating on high internal quality is about reducing that drop-off in productivity. Indeed, some products see an opposite effect where developers can accelerate as new features can be easily built by making use of the prior work. This happy situation is a rare case and it requires a skilled and disciplined team to make it happen. But we do occasionally see it. And he juxtaposes the prior graph with, it kind of looks like a pretty straight line that intersects with the low quality line. And I think the the point he's making is that initially your speed on low quality work, low quality code, you have a faster earlier time to production, but then it slows down over time. But with high internal quality, I think to like Eric's point, it's that you just say nice and consistent over time. And how would you think about like uh, project planning in both cases? Like, is the speed have to do with, in the first case, you kind of just, okay, let's just get something going. Or second case, like, let's sit down and like graph stuff out and think about this carefully, et cetera. Or like, what do you think the main differences there are? So I think there's two parts to it. One is on the engineering, like purely on the engineering side, it's just about, you know, making good architectural choices and then having discipline when it comes to sticking to them. And then on the broader side, you have to be on the same page with your project management and product teams. And there needs to be an understanding that like your sprints are part of a larger process towards a feature or towards a series of features, if they're treated too much like a finish line every two weeks, yep. that's where you get into the situations where every seven days into 10 days of work, you're now adding cruft just to finish get in your demo. Right. And, yeah. And so every 10 work days, you have like three days of piling crap into the app. Whereas if, if you have a little more flexibility over the course of two, three sprints, you'll actually still be farther ahead and have higher quality and maybe just had to move a few demos around. So I think it's it's really understanding deadlines, demos, and how they should interact with like the engineering team. Yep. And, and stakeholders who understand that as well. Yeah. At this point, so he goes on to say, at this point, we run into why this is a pseudograph. There's no way of measuring the functionality delivered by a software team. This inability to measure output and thus productivity makes it impossible to put solid numbers on the consequences of low internal quality which is also difficult to measure. An inability to measure output is pretty common among professional work. How do we measure the productivity of lawyers or doctors? Well, I think lawyers, it's just uh, billing, right? Billable hours. (laughs) The way I assess where, yeah, and doctors, I guess, is like, you know, they have some stats. Yeah, they have some stats. it's it's, It's like lines of code. Like it is a much harder thing to measure because 
you do see situations where the moment some metric is introduced, like surgeons with complications, then right. surgeons start turning down very complicated cases because it's going to mess up their stats. And so I get what he's saying. Yeah. It's it's hard to have sp- metrics because th- these situations are complicated. Wait, I think I think you're you're blowing my mind here. Are you saying that lines of code is not a good metric for software developers? Meaning more lines of code means better software. Well, lines of code is a great metric, but the one you're looking for is lines of code removed. Okay, <laughs> people are halfway there. So you, the more lines of code you remove from a piece of software while preserving or improving functionality, the more successful you are as a developer. <laughs> So the lines of code is is just half the story. Yeah, and he continues, the way I assess where lines cross is by canvassing the opinion of skilled developers that I know. And the answer surprises a lot of folks. Developers find poor quality code significantly slows them down within a few weeks. So there's not much runway where the trade-off between internal quality and cost applies. Even small software efforts benefit from attention to good software practices, certainly something I can attest from my experience. So that's really interesting, right? Yeah. Like personally, one expectation I like to set when kicking off a project, because I've been on projects where, especially if you're dealing with clients that you're working with the first time, there's a lot of pressure to like have something something. nice to show for the first demo. And I've been on uh, projects where, what was requested was basically like mock up the wireframes and have that to show and then start filling, like then start adding functionality. And that's usually a disaster because that forces you into so many bad architectural choices that are driven by like how you structure your UI. Right. That if you get a client that's willing to be a little more flexible, what I like to say is I'm, I'm going to have nothing to show for you for the first sprint. Yep. Because the first sprint is about getting all the DevOps stuff nicely in place because a huge part of performance from the developer side when it comes to reducing unforced errors and also productivity is having a really good DevOps setup. Yep. And then just getting all of your important architectural choices made early on. That might mean spiking on some stuff that you're going to throw away or what have you. But I really like to just have nothing to show for the first sprint because all the like groundwork for what's going to give you the good velocity and high quality later on should be set in the first sprint. Right. And I think a lot of people will understand if you explain that up front. I mean, pretty much every other profession, like lawyers have a period of like research to do on a new case, right? Right. Even if you want to say, oh, software is just like construction, you know, just build me this thing. Well, if you want to use the construction example, you have to spend some time layout, blueprinting, right? I mean, it seems natural right. that software is kind of this funny thing because it's like a little ephemeral. It's just there. You can like delete it and add stuff and it things change. It's not totally clear what's going on. There's just stuff happening in the yeah. background. So that maybe there's some kind of like psychological confusion there. But you do have a period of like research and blueprinting and architecture and all that that you have to do before you can actually really start with development work. Yeah, And it's not like that's not development. That's also development. It's not fingers on the keyboard. Yeah. And it's not the client's job to like know that, especially if they're non-technical. Like That's part of your job as a developer is to be able to communicate all, all the stuff you need yeah. to to be able to do a good job as opposed to just doing whatever you're told. And I would argue that also that's right. partially the... And, and seething and anger. ...role of a good PM is to either advocate for their developers as such or let their developers communicate with the client depending on the relationship. Yep. Okay, next section. Even the best teams create cruft. So I take issue with this. We've right. never created any cruft in our lives. 
<laughs> Martin Fowler doesn't know. Right. <laughs> Many non-developers tend to think of cruft as something that only occurs when development teams are careless and make errors. But even the finest teams will inevitably create some cruft as they work. I mean, even Satoshi did this with like the early Bitcoin implementation. I like to illustrate this point with the tale of when I was chatting with one of our best technical team leads. He just finished a project that was widely considered to be a great success. The client was happy with the delivered system, both in terms of its capabilities and its construction time and cost. Our people were positive about the experience of working on the project. The tech lead was broadly happy, but confessed that the architecture of the system wasn't that good. I reacted, how could that be? You're one of our best architects. His reply is one familiar to any experienced software architect. We made good decisions, but only now do we understand how we should have built it. Oh man, that's deep. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how true. It's so true. Like you spend so much time building something and then you realize, oh, this is what it really is. This is a way to do it. How many conversations have we had about this where I'll be like, oh man, we did such and such decision because of all these reasons. But now that I know this, like I would have done this differently. Right. I don't know what, what the fix for that is. That seems to be pretty. I mean, you learn from the things that you do, right? Yeah. I don't know that there's a, f- a fix for that. I think that's just how humans have progressed at building things. Mm-hmm. Like, I think you just learn how to do things better in the process of doing it. I think the, you can improve the we made good decisions part. And then the next time around, like, include what you learned into your good decisions. Right. He continues, many people, including more than a few in the software industry, liken building software to constructing cathedrals or skyscrapers. After all, why do we use the word architect for senior programmers? But building software exists in a world of uncertainty unknown to the physical world. Oh, this is what we were talking about earlier. Software's customers have only a rough idea of what features they need in a product and learn more as the software is built. So let's like stop there because I feel like that is its own like section. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you often work with the team. They have very solid understanding internally of what they're looking for. But even as you build, you know, what they want, you have to make certain decisions, say, around UX. And that informs, like, how a feature might work. That might inform, like, how a new feature might be useful to their app and so forth and so on. But you really do learn a lot during the building process. So that's why we like to work with teams who kind of understand that and are, like, willing to be flexible there. Because it's very different. Like, if you just come to someone and say, hey, I just really just want like a copy of Facebook, that's like one type of app. If you say you want to build something, something new that's kind of like this other thing, the moment you say it's like kind of like, there's all these other decisions and factors that come along during that. And you only learn that like while the software is being built. Yeah. The building blocks of software development, languages, libraries, and platforms change significantly every few years. The equivalent in the physical world would be that customers usually add new floors and change the floor plan once half the building is built and occupied, while the fundamental properties of the concrete change every other year. <laughs> I would say maybe with materials too, like, you know, like architectural design choices change, you know, from the 70s, to 80s, and 90s, all a little different. Yeah. Both for quality, but also for like aesthetics too. Yeah. And it's, it's particularly, I would, you know, I would say it's even more pronounced in JavaScript land where, I mean, we've been on projects with React where if it's a long enough project, the way like React is done or even that specific flavor of, you know, React and Redux 
is handled like will or routing is handled will change throughout the life of the project. Yep. Like React Router. Yeah. Given this level of change, software projects are always creating something novel. We hardly ever find ourselves working on a well-understood platform that's been solved before. Naturally, we learn most about the problem as we're building the solution. And then he goes on and kind of gives an example of like how some teams that create less cruft versus more cruft. So the difference is that the best teams both create much less cruft, but also remove enough of the cruft they do create so they can continue to add features quickly. They spend time creating automated tests so they can surface problems quickly, spend less time removing bugs. They refactor frequently so they can remove cruft before it builds up enough to get in the way. So that's kind of interesting too. Yeah. And I think we've seen that over time. I know when I started, there would often be times where I was like, this much refactoring is not a good use of time. And then invariably within a few weeks, I was proven wrong. And so I've learned like you always just err on the side of doing a little more refactoring or writing a little more tests than you think is the sweet spot between like, let's say speed and quality. Yeah. We've heard of teams actually have, you know, spending like the second half of their, it's hard to like dedicate a whole day to this, but um, we've heard of teams spending like, you know, the second half of their Fridays, like refactor Fridays and things like that. I think it's just kind of, I don't know if that's just kind of lip service to developers who are asking for it. And I don't mean that in any rude way. I'm just, I, how much can you get done with half a Friday of refactoring? Not much. I yeah, think you kind of have just, to do it. It needs to be built into the process because yeah. it's it's like Friday afternoon is not always going to be the spot in your process that is ideal for refactoring. Yeah. So it needs to be a certain chunk of time, but it's, it needs to be at the ideal time. Right, because you got... And so you, I don't think you can schedule it that you way. Have, you have lunch from 12 to 2, and then you have beers at 5. So, I mean, there's a limited amount of time on Fridays where people are going to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the next <laughs> High-quality software is cheaper to produce. Summing all of this up, so four points he makes. Neglecting internal quality leads to rapid buildup of cruft. Two, this cruft slows down feature development. Three, even a great team produces cruft, but by keeping internal quality high, it's able to keep it under control. Four, high internal quality keeps cruft to a minimum, allowing a team to add features with less effort, time, and cost. Sadly, software developers usually don't do a good job of explaining the situation. Countless times I've talked to development teams who say they, management, won't let us write good quality code because it takes too long. Developers often justify to quality by justifying through the need for proper professionalism. But this moralistic argument implies that this quality comes at a cost, dooming their argument. The annoying thing is that the resulting crufty code both makes developers' life harder and costs the customer money. When thinking about internal quality, I stress that we should only approach it as an economic argument. High internal quality reduces the cost of future features, meaning that putting the time into writing good code actually reduces cost. This is why the question that heads the article misses the point. The cost of high internal quality software is negative. The usual trade-off between cost and quality, one that we're used to do for most decisions in our life, does not make sense with the internal quality of software. It does for external qualities such as carefully crafted user experience. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because the relationship between cost and internal quality is an unusual and counterintuitive relationship, it's usually hard to absorb. But understanding is critical to developing software at maximum efficiency. Yeah, I like that 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 summary. I think that really does capture the the argument. 
that quality saves you money. And I think is you know we've seen this in the space where there's been a trend of developers to think of themselves as, as like software craftsmen. Yep. And I think internally that's not a bad thing, but when you're trying to sell to like a business stakeholder, there is an implication of what you're doing is somehow special and expensive. And that's like exactly the opposite um, of what you want to be selling because a lot of places see software as a cost yep. center. And so you want to be selling it as, hey, we're providing you this functionality for cheaper, not we have free range farm to table software. That's like really right. special, but that does like the same thing as the software that you, you need yep. for less money. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.